Good morning, everyone. Today's uh, reading is from Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, and that's on page 976 in the Black Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is God's word. My name is Ryan Phelps. I serve Grace Point as pastor. It is really good to be with you. If you haven't been with us before, we just started a new series the last couple of weeks. We're in the book of Ephesians. We're taking our time in this first chapter. We're kind of, we're building something here. We're, we're going slowly through it so that we can build this amazing foundation that Paul has laid out before us. Uh, just a, a quick announcement. If you don't have a Bible, I was just thinking about this as I was sitting there. If you don't have a Bible, take one of those Bibles in the back. And keep it. That is our gift to you. And then when you open it up, when you see you can see the books, you'll see the big numbers. Those are the chapter numbers, and the tiny numbers are the verse numbers. Again, we are in Ephesians 1 this morning. But because this is God's holy word, we go to him in prayer before we do it. So let's pray. God, we stand humbled, awed, amazed at the glory that we see embedded here in these words, in this text, in your holy word. And so, God, would we come in greatly humbled, but greatly expectant, expecting to see you do something, to have you work on our hearts. God, we have strayed in numerous ways this week. We have uh, pushed away your will in our lives in more ways than one. And so we are coming back now to be re-centered Recentered on Jesus Christ and his gospel, displayed in your holy word. God, would you now do a work on our hearts, bringing your children closer to you, that we may trust, that we may love, that we may glorify your holy name. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it usually happens in April. April is usually when this happens. The snow is melting. The first Green buds on the trees are emerging, and I put on shorts, and my wife says it, Ryan, I have been thinking about what to get the kids for Christmas this year. What is, what is that? What is Christmas? My wife is a planner. She is a planner probably subconsciously why I married her, because I am not. I am the opposite of a planner. She likes to plan out five years of her life. I cannot plan out five minutes of my life. She thinks everything through. She writes it on lists. She loves to plan. That makes me sweat. How can you think about the next five days, let alone five years? But because my wife is smarter and wiser than me, we start talking about Christmas. 
We plan our kids' gifts in April. But it's not just because my wife is a planner that she does this. That's not the main reason. There's something else in her heart that's driving this, something that is far more important and why I love her. She does it because she loves her kids. She loves them with all of her heart. And she will do anything to bring them joy. This sort of planning, this sort of forethought, it means that my kids are going to get gifts that they truly need. Gifts that they really need and want and will enjoy. The thoughtfulness, the care that goes into this. It shows her heart and guarantees, in a sense, their joy. Planning, yes, but love more. It reveals something about her. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, something truly astonishing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Think of that. God has planned your blessings, your gifts before the foundation of the world. And that can only mean the the cosmos The universe. He is talking about the creation of everything. Before any of that came into existence, he was thinking about you and the blessings he was going to provide to you. Before God created trillions of galaxies, his mind, his heart was set on his people. What will I give to them? What will I plan for them? And so our question finally this morning, we've been building up to this. What are the gifts? What are the blessings that the loving Father has planned for us? They are truly what we need. And they are truly what will bring us infinite happiness. So let's go look. We are in Ephesians 1. We're going to be mainly in verses 4 through 6. And I have three points to help us walk through it this morning. One, the gifts. Two, the grounds of those gifts. And three, the goal of those gifts. The gifts, the ground, and the goal. One, the gifts. Start in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So that makes sense so far. This is what we've been building up to. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. We have all these things by virtue of our relationship, our union with Jesus. That's what we saw last week. These are gifts that are not just physical, but they are spiritual. They are not just earthly, but they are heavenly gifts. And then verse 4 introduces the idea that we were chosen for this. God has been thinking about this for a long, long time, but we are still not talking about the thing. What has he chosen us for? What has he set aside for us? What are these things that are spiritual, that are heavenly? What are we chosen for? Verse 4 again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holiness and blamelessness. And that is kind of a weird gift. That is not something that you 
think about and say, you know, out of everything in the world, that's what I want. That's what I think I need. And we always get those kind of gifts at Christmas, right? Especially if someone hasn't been planning it, they got it for you the day before. We get some weird gifts. I've told this story before, but I like to, to say it again. One, more, one Christmas morning, my mother-in-law gave me a power strip. A power strip for Christmas. You know, like one of these things back here that you plug stuff into. And I opened it and I gave her that look as best I could like, thank you. Wow. I don't know how you thought of this. You're so awesome. And she looked at me and she says, Ryan, this is so cool. I know you love techie stuff, so I got that for you. Okay. You can turn it off and on wirelessly, she said. You can connect it to your wireless router, get an iPhone app that you download from the Apple Store, and you can turn it on and off from anywhere in the world. What was weird and a kind of a crappy gift became instantly cool. The gifts of holiness and blamelessness. That is not what we are expecting after all this time. This is not what we would pick for ourselves, left to ourselves, not in a million years. But we have to listen because God is infinite in wisdom and love and he knows exactly what we need. Why is this so important? Well, because blamelessness and holiness, they do two things. They take something away from us and they give something to us. God gives us blamelessness. But when he gives us blamelessness, actually what he's doing is he's taking something away from us. He's taking something away. Think of it in that way. When we are united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, God takes away the things in our lives that shame us. He takes away the things that rightly condemn us, that make us guilty. All of the wrongs that we have done, they are wiped away. They are clean. Every sin, every shortcoming, we are not on the hook for ever again. It is nailed to the cross. It is taken away from us. I read about a pastor who... He confessed to his board that he was really struggling. He was struggling because he was obsessed with what people thought of him. I'm glad he's the only one, right? He, he needed to be well thought of in his life to feel good, to feel right. And he, and he was able to think back into his life that his whole life he struggled with this. When he was in the fourth grade, he was a really good and bright student. He, got, he aced every quiz, every test. He did all the work. But one week... He got sick. He got sick and he missed a lot of the material they were studying with math that week. When he got back, for some reason the teacher said, I want you to take the test anyway. Probably to, to see how far he had come, how much he really knew. And he took that quiz and he failed it miserably. And then she went up to the board and she wrote down his name saying, he needs remedial help to catch up. And it horrified him to the point that it actually made him physically sick, he said. And the teacher had to send him home thinking that he had come down with something. Now, he didn't need to have his name up on that board, really. He didn't. He didn't need to be reminded that he had to work. He was a good student. But we do. 
We have done things that have put us up on the board. We have fallen short. We have sinned. We are to blame. Can you imagine coming here on a Sunday morning and I have a board up here and there's your name and listed beneath it are all your sins. You would go running and screaming. You would feel tremendous shame. You would feel blame. Even when we try to cover up the wrongs we have done, even when we try to minimize them or rationalize them, we all internally, spiritually feel it. Everyone carries guilt and God comes in through Jesus Christ and he unites us with Jesus and he takes all of that away. All of our blame, all of our guilt, he erases our name from the board. God made us alive together with him, Paul says in Colossians, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Our sin is canceled. Our blame is taken away. You, friends, are free, blameless. No more looking over your shoulder. No more harboring guilt. No more trying to hide who you are. He has taken it all away. That is an amazing gift. The gift of blamelessness. But your name is not just erased from the board, actually. It's not just erased. Your name is actually written down again on the other side of the board. But this time it's a new column. And your name somehow, I don't know how it would look, it is united with Jesus Christ. And that means simply that you have his holiness. That's the second thing. We are given blamelessness, which means we're having something taken away for us, from us, but we are given something. We are given holiness. Holiness. And it means two things. It means, it means two things here. It means Jesus' record of righteousness. His life for our life. But it also means a path to actually physically, spiritually become like him. In his dying and his rising, Jesus gave us his perfect record. That's the first thing. He gave us his perfect resume. It is ours. All of his good works, all of his perfect obedience, his holiness, his very perfection. And so now when God looks down on us, because we are united with him, he sees his son. Our blame gone, his perfect record attached to ours. But we don't just get his record of holiness. We are simultaneously put on a path to become just like him. Someday we will live it out. We will live it out before him in glory. Now, obviously, we're still racked with sin. We are still burdened by imperfection. But friends, this is not the end. That is what this gift is telling us. This is not the end. Our shortcomings, our failures, our sins, they will be taken away as we become like Jesus Christ. The holiness that we have by virtue of our union with Jesus will become our literal reality. Paul says this in Philippians 1, and I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What are these gifts? What are they really? Holiness and blamelessness. They are the promise to us of restoration, of renewal. 
He stands before us and he says, I am going to make things as they were always intended to be. You were not meant to feel envy and pride. You were not meant to struggle with lust or lying or hatred. We were meant for things far greater. We were meant to naturally feel and exude peace and patience and kindness and self-control and love. But listen, friends, here's the ultimate gift. It is bringing us to a point, to a place. All of this so that we may be united with God forever. Look at verse 4 one more time. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. What does it say? Before him. Holiness and blamelessness are what we need to stand and to come into the presence of God. What we need to see him, know him, and love him. And that is infinite happiness. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, it's about the people from hell coming up to this intermediate place where they're meeting creatures, these saved, glorious beings from heaven. One woman is racked with pride and vanity. And she meets her friend, who she knew in the, in the previous life, and he is now this glorious being. And she says to him despairingly, Oh, I wish I had never been born. What are we even born for? And he says back to her, infinite happiness. What we've been given is infinite joy, infinite delight. To become as we were always meant to be, perfectly restored so that we can live with God forever. That is a gift. That is a gift. Now, there are some grounds for this gift, though. There are some things that we can rely on, count on, to prove to us that this is true. This is not too good to be true. This is reality. The grounds. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The two grounds here that I see are election and adoption. Election and adoption. What about election? What does verse 4 say? Even as he chose us in him. Now we need to be careful here. This is a word that has a lot of theological baggage. Now, my plan, don't hold me to this, my plan is to dig deeper next week to jump into some of these deeper waters because I want to be a theologically rich church. I don't, I don't want to be afraid of things that are difficult in the scriptures. I want to talk about them out loud. So that's my plan. I might change my mind, but that's my plan. But we don't need to dive deep right now to just stand before this truth and believe it, that we are chosen in him. That is what Paul is saying. Not what some theologian is saying, not what some preacher is saying. This is Paul himself saying that God chose us. He chose us as a people. He chose us as individuals. Yes, we chose him. We did. We reached out to him and said, we want you. But he chose us first. This is mysterious. It is profound, but it is so 
wonderful God set his choosing love on us before time began, before any of the cosmos had been created in his infinite wisdom and power, he decided to place his electing love on us. Period. Take it to the bank. You don't need to go any deeper than that to believe it and trust it and revel in it. And it is so humbling. Listen, that is the first thing. It is so humbling. We are not chosen in our good works. We are not chosen in our awesomeness. We are chosen in him. And what does that mean? It means in Christ. In other words, we are not chosen for any good in us. He did not have to pick us out. Undeserving, broken, busted up, worn down, full of unrighteousness. And he chose us Anyway, the foundation of election, friends, is grace. How humbling. And yet totally reassuring. Totally reassuring because the Lord of hosts, he has done this thing. He has chosen for a salvation. And that means he will not fail. As sure as the placement of every star in the galaxy In the universe, so sure by way of his choosing is our salvation in Jesus Christ. Your infinite happiness is grounded in your election. It's also grounded in your adoption. In your adoption. Verse 5. He predestined us. That's another way of saying election or choosing. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, and you could add, and daughters, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Adoption is kind of what it sounds like. We are now part of God's family. We are his heirs, and he had to plan for this. Before he created the world, he knew, he looked forward in time, and he said they were going to fall. He knew this. He knew that we would turn our backs on him, and we would leave his loving care. We would say, no, you will not be our father. You will not be our God. And so he would have to plan to bring us back. He predestined us to bring us back into the folds of his family. He would be our father. We would be his sons and his daughters. Now, they they did have adoption back in the early days in, in Ephesians in that first century in Ephesus. Usually it was older children that a, a family, a father would bring in and he would do so to pass on his family name. That was so important. He needed someone to carry on the traditions, his family name. And it was a legal transaction, just like it is today. So once the legal transaction was completed, the boy or the girl would become their legal child. And that meant they had, they had access at that point to everything, his inheritance, his care, his love. In other words, whatever separation there was, Before, when there was the adoption, when the the legal proceeding took place, was gone. It was as though they had always been father and children. Father to son and daughter. Our adoption into God's family, friends, brothers and sisters, is the same. Though we once lived as his enemies, now we are his children. There is no barrier. He sees us, treats us, loves us as though we have always been with him. That is an amazing thing. A woman was staying with her parents 
after she, had been give, after she had given birth to her first child. She said to her mom about this new baby, the grandma, she said, Mom, I'm just so, I'm just so surprised that the baby has dark hair. Charlie, that was her husband, Charlie and I are both blonde. And her mom replied, well, honey, your dad has dark hair. Your father has dark hair. And the daughter looked at her mom and said, Mom, I'm adopted. And the mom responds, I always forget. Predestined not just for salvation, not just for justification, but to be his children. Kids in the kingdom of heaven with God as our Father. Jerry Packer, a theologian, he says, this is, above all other theological realities, the most important one. It stands above the rest. Just listen to what he says. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of it. Our grounds are election and adoption. And now I'll ask the goal. The goal. So we were chosen for the foundations of the world for holiness and blamelessness. We are predestined to adoption in Jesus Christ. Why? What is the goal? What's the point? Wait a minute, isn't that the point? Haven't we just been talking about the point? Isn't that the whole purpose of everything? Actually, Paul doesn't say that. He says there is one more thing and it is so important. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Remember this whole passage. It is a eulogy. Not a eulogy we hear at a funeral, but a eulogy that you would speak over someone's life to show, to speak of their greatness. Paul is speaking of the greatness of God and he's saying the thing that makes, the God, that makes God the, the greatest is this. The goal of our salvation is the glory of God. Now just think about that. God saves to be glorified. He is gracious so that he will be glorified. God is most glorified. He is most magnified to the degree that he is electing, saving, choosing, and being gracious. When he is saving, he is fully magnified. As he pursues us in love, as he wins us and our affection in love, as he redeems and restores, as he gives to us infinite happiness, God's greatness and majesty are on full display. Now listen, the angels know this. The angels believe this. They are living it out. 
Peter says that angels, you know, these perfect, powerful, massively intelligent beings, they stand back to admire the electing grace, the electing love of God. This is the thing that makes him brightest, that magnifies him the most. God is most glorified in his love for us to the praise of his glorious grace, Paul says. And so this means something wonderful. This is such good news because for the sake of his name, God is pursuing you. God is pursuing you. For the sake of his glory, God is completely, totally, wholly committed to you to restore you, to renew you, to save you. The glorified God, listen, is the pursuing God. And I just want to ask, do you know it? Do you know God's heart for you? Do you know that his saving gaze is upon you? That his electing love has chosen you? And that though he has just saved you, that's not it. He is walking with you. He continues to pursue you. You who are adopted, you don't give in too easily. He keeps on coming after you out of love for his glory. Trust his care. Rest in his sovereignty. Friends, brothers and sisters, rejoice at his grace. Or maybe you are at that first stage. He has pursued you your whole life and you feel it now. And you need to stop running And let him overtake you. You need to quit moving away from him. Admit your lostness. And let him finally have you. I say give your life over to this great pursuing God. To the praise of his glorious grace. I want to read a story from a book called The Pursuing God. That I think uh, illustrates this well. Jim and Sarah, they welcomed Misha into their home when they decided to become foster parents. Misha was only a teenager, but she had seen a lot, abandoned by her family, put into human trafficking, exploited in every way that you do not want to think about. Jim and Sarah's first few days with Misha were great, but once that honeymoon period ended, everything became a struggle. Misha punched, kicked, screamed, fought, yelled, and threw things. But Jim and Sarah bent over backward to make her comfortable. They loved her. The second that she was in their home, they loved her. But the first few months felt as though they had welcomed a cyclone into their home. Sarah found, found it especially difficult. Misha paid loads of attention to Jim, lavishing praise and affection his way. Even though Jim never reciprocated, it was hard for Sarah to watch. Misha even turned quickly to calling him dad. In contrast, she treated Sarah cruelly, shouting, blaming, ignoring, cursing, and calling her a barrage of names. But mom was not one of them. So after six months, Jim and Sarah needed a break. They got a babysitter, dressed to the nines, and hit the town for the evening. They returned feeling rested, refreshed. They had a little space just to 
be whole again, to care for their marriage. When they got home, the babysitter welcomed them at the front door. She said everything went great. Misha was pleasant the entire evening, and she was now upstairs and fast asleep. They were relieved. They went upstairs to get ready for bed. Jim walked into the master bathroom, and he let out a shocked, Oh, no. Sarah, do not come in here. You do not want to see this. He scrambled to gather some cleaning supplies and deal with the mess before she got there, but it was too late. Sarah charged into the bathroom curiously and quickly discovered what all the fuss was about. Misha had found Sarah's red lipstick and scrawled in massive letters all across the bathroom mirrors and walls. Blank you, mom. Blank you, mom. Blank you, mom. It didn't say blank, of course. Jim's thoughts were racing. Should we have stayed home? Did Misha think that we had abandoned her? How is Sarah going to survive this? But when he turned to his wife, he was shocked. She was laughing. Not a little, not a a tiny laugh, not a, a chuckle, but a slow and building roar. It began as a rumble deep within, rising steadily through her chest until finally her mouth opened, the dam broke, and she roared hysterically. Sarah crumpled into a ball on the floor, a waterfall of tears streaming down her face, laughing as she had never laughed before. And Jim is looking at this, perplexed, shocked, silent. Has she gone crazy? Has she lost it? Was this finally the straw that broke the camel's back? Finally, he found the words and he asked, What is so funny? Sarah peered out through her tears of joy, fighting for breath, until finally, between the convulsions, she was able to squeeze out. She called me mom. To the praise of his glorious grace. To to the praise of the heartsick father who thought of us before the world began. To the praise of the adopting father who found us kicking and screaming and biting and swearing and saved us to holiness and blamelessness. To the praise of the pursuing father who loved us so much that he sacrificed his own son on the altar of the world. Friends, we are chosen for happiness. Brothers and sisters, may we sing, may we shout, and we have great joy. Let's pray. Oh God, work in our hearts. That is all we can ask. We've been handed these glorious realities. They are true for us as they always have been. But day in and day out, week in and week out, month after month, sometimes year after year, we do not believe them. We do not trust you. We have called on your holy name. We have chosen you that you would save us by the blood of Jesus. 
but we keep forgetting. We keep fighting. We do not know you as Father. God, I know that there are many here who refuse to call you that name. They have been burned by their fathers for so long. They've had terrible childhoods. They refuse to reach out to you, calling you Daddy, Abba, Father. All I can ask God is that you would speak into their hearts now and show them who you truly are. And God, for those who love you and want to serve you, would they bask in these things? Would they live their life out centered on these things? That they may serve you. That they may grow in holiness to become like Jesus. And God, I pray that for this church. We call each other brother and sister, not just because it sounds good, but because that is a reality. So every time we say it, we are speaking glorious, eternal, cosmic truth to each other. May that be our song. May that be our joy. And God, now would you lift our hearts to sing. Make us not sad, but infinitely happy. Give us just a taste of that this morning this week, this month, and this year. In Jesus' name, amen.